This morning I want to talk with you about a faith that has a right passion. A faith that has a right passion. James has been speaking here in chapter 3 about worldly wisdom, contrasting it with godly wisdom. And he's going to kind of keep on that theme. In fact, he's going to talk about worldly passion, worldly lusts, living in a way that displays worldliness instead of godliness. And so this kind of builds on what we've been looking at in chapter 3. Now, my mentor, uh, Dr. Chad Brand, he, he was... Uh, an, an interim pastor, an intentional interim at multiple churches. And so he has all the good stories to tell. I hope to have him down here one time. And he told me one time of a church that he pastored in rural Kentucky. And they brought him in. And this church was notorious for lots of fights, lots of problems, running off pastors. And they at one time had a church split over the color of the paint in the sanctuary. A real church split. And, and by the time that Dr. Brand came in, he really was trying, when he comes in, he usually comes in and tries to bring healing and work through issues. And one of the biggest things that needed to be done is this, the, the, the inside of the church had to be painted. It had been years and nobody ever wanted to bring up painting the church again after the last time. And so he said he came to a business meeting. He had already got a bid and he came to a business meeting and he said, uh, he said, so and so would like to, he, he brought in rollers and a bucket and, 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 and everything. And he said, here's the thing. The church needs painted. We can do it or we can pay this guy this amount. And they said, well, we'll pay that guy. And he said, second order of business. He only has one color. <laughs> It happens, doesn't it? Perhaps you have been a part of a business meeting gone wry. In our own church, we, there's stories and churches that you've come from. Conflicts have always plagued the church, it seems like. Members fighting members, leaders fighting leaders, churches fighting churches. Here's, here's, a, here's a few that, uh, that I read about. These are all real. These are all major arguments that happened in churches. In one church, there was a major argument that came up over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I, I guess it just needs to be a little bit shorter than the pastor's, right? Is that? Uh, there was an argument over um, whether or not to install stall dividers in the women's restroom. That was, a, that was an argument in one church, a major argument. Uh, another church had a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I just want to know who took the picture. <laughs> Uh, one church had a major controversy in, in a meeting over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. The argument was settled when one member finally stood up and put a dime in the collection plate. Now, I will say that is 10 times more important than a missing penny. Some of you did not get that. I, I'm try this is the best I've got. Uh, one, one church took multiple business meetings and arguments over whether or not they should purchase a weed eater. That, that was a wacky business meeting, right? Um, one church had a major argument over whether or not they should allow deviled eggs at the church meals. 
Now, to be fair, it should be balanced with angel food cake, right? As silly and as petty as these things seem, there are things like this nearly in every church's history. There are many individuals who have been damaged because of these fights, because of silliness that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that have nothing to do. Remember when we looked at James chapter 3, it says, it says that godly wisdom is first pure, then peaceable. This has nothing to do with the purity of the gospel. It's opinions, it's selfish ambition. The things that we've been looking at previously in James chapter 3. And what I want you to realize is these fights not only damage individuals in the church, they damage the reputation of the church. They open the church up for unbelievers to say, look at you. You want to tell me about peace? You want to tell me about love? You want to tell me about grace? You're fighting over 10 cents? You're fighting over color? You're, you're fighting over this? James writes and says, well, how does this happen? What's the source? What's the source of these arguments? What's the source of this pettiness so often that we see displayed in the church? So if you have James chapter 4, would you read with me the first five verses? The first five verses of James chapter 4. This is God's word. It says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you have not, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you have asked wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Strong words. Pray with me. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and open our minds this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would receive your word with meekness, that we would approach this time with a desire to be changed by your Holy Spirit a desire to be changed by your word. I pray that you would break our hard hearts, remove stubbornness from us, because we want to be a church and a people who love you. We want to be a church and a people who glorify you. We want to be a church and a people that can be used mightily and greatly by you in this community and wherever we go. So Lord, help us today. Not just to, to look at a text for history, but to allow the word of God to cut deep into our own hearts and expose our sin, that we might be a changed people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, the audience to whom James is writing, if you remember, is originally, we think, his church in Jerusalem that had been scattered because of persecution. So there's various churches, there's various peoples, there's lots of tension, there's lots of pressures going on with, with conflict and, and, and being persecuted and, and, you know, refugees almost out of their own hometown in hiding. And so when, when the pressure gets on, 
That's often when we look our ugliest, isn't it? And it seems as though this was going on. James writes multiple things about what's going on in this church, the the issues that they're dealing with. They're having problems getting along with each other. They struggled with class distinctions. He's a rich guy. He's a poor guy. He's dressed well. He's dressed shabby. They struggled with unqualified teachers that were coming in and leading groups that who never should have. They struggled with envy over themselves and over others. James just wrote about the idea of envy and selfish ambition. And there was all sorts of disorder, it seems. In fact, their level of conflict was so much that James writes here and says that they're fighting, they're quarreling. He even says that they're murdering each other. Now, it's debated on whether or not they're actually really murdering or if James is just uh, using hyperbole here to, to, to bring out the extreme of what's going on. Remember, Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And so James is bringing out what's going on in the churches is ridiculous. The way you're treating fellow believers, the way you are acting towards each other, this is causing open sin and divisions. And so how is it that an individual, especially in the context here, a a, a person who loves the Lord, who's involved in church, how is it that such an individual ends up with such bitterness and anger towards other believers, other members of his own church? We've seen it, right? This isn't, this isn't just far out. We can talk about it somewhere else. It happens. How do we get that way? Well, it's the same way an individual believer in the Lord, someone that, 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 that truly loves the Lord, can, can wind up in great sin. And it's because we become controlled by worldly passions rather than godly passions. Controlled by worldly passions rather than godly passions. And so I want us to look at this text in light of this idea of, of our passions or our desires or your, your version might be interpreted pleasures. All of this, the same idea, these, these internal things that we don't necessarily know, but they're driving us, right? They're dictating and directing where we are going. Have you thought about your passions? Have you thought about your desires? Have you thought about why you do what you do? Have you thought about when you find yourself in sin? How did I get here? What caused me to do this? And so James is going to expose this for us. The first thing that we see is we must recognize the force of our passions. We must recognize the force of our passions. James begins with a question here. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Why do you fight with each other? What's, what's going on? And his answer is another question. He says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? Why are you fighting with each other? It's because you're passionate about something, right? Why are you so passionate about this thing that it would cause you to quarrel and fight? And James even says even murder to, to this kind of hatred. What would cause that? And it is the passions, worldly passions within us. Now, this word for, for pleasure or passion is the Greek term uh, hedone. It's the, it's the term we get hedonism from, love of pleasure. It's a, it's a philosophy, an individual that says, uh, do whatever makes you the most happy, right? We hear that. That's popular in our world. 
that's popular today. Whatever makes you the most happy. Doesn't matter what the consequences are. Doesn't matter if it's right. Doesn't matter if it's wrong. It made me happy. That's the idea of hedonism. Now, uh, this, can, this pleasure, this idea of hedonism, it can be used in a positive way. Um, one, one book, a, a wonderful book by John Piper writes about this idea that he calls Christian hedonism, being a Christian hedonist, that we would, in all that we do, seek the pleasures of God. That the more, uh, the more satisfied we are in God, the more we glorify Him. So the idea is if, if God is your greatest focus, if, if God is your greatest passion, glorifying Him in your life is your drive and you want to experience great and good things by doing that, what you're going to find is you're going to live according to God and you're going to be more fulfilled with God, right? And so, so it can be used in a positive way, but here in James, this idea of, of pleasure and passion is negative. This, this is the idea of a, of, a, of a lust or a desire for something without regard to what it means. Whether it's right or whether it's wrong, it, it doesn't matter. I, I want that thing. And friends, misplaced passions cause all kinds of grievous sins, don't they? Misplaced passions can cause all kinds of grievous sins. When we begin to live for something, and even good things can turn into the wrong things. Do you realize this? To love your family is a good thing. To love your family so much that you cut out God, it's not a good thing. Anything, Augustine wrote about uh, use it, utilizing anything, that, that, it, that it's, you can take anything in the world and you can, you can love it the right amount that God tells us. You can love it too much and love that thing more than, than the way that God ordered it in our lives around him. Or you can not love the thing that you're supposed to love. Does that make sense? It all revolves around our passions, how we love, the, how we pursue. Do you have a godly passion in your life? Do you desire to love him and to know him and to glorify him? The Bible says whether you eat or drink, in anything, in the simplest things, there is a way to live in which we seek to glorify God or there is a way in which we live that will lead to sin. Have you ever thought about that? Do you have a a view and a passion and an idea of God that I want to live for him at every moment? I want to I want to do everything that I do. I want it to be in a way that glorifies God. If we live with that kind of passion, all these other things will begin to work themselves out. So how does somebody get this passionate that they would be this quarrelsome in the church? The first thing James says is that you have the wrong desires. You have the wrong desires. Notice his language here. He says, "You lust, you desire, you're envious or covetous. You ask, and why is it that you ask?" so that you can spend it on your pleasures or, or on your passions. The point that James is making here is that becoming a Christian, it would be wonderful if, if the moment we're a Christian, we no longer sin, right? Wouldn't that be great? That's when Jesus comes back. But until that time, we still have this old self. We still have this, this old sin. We still have these old ways. We still have this old desire and this old influence. And we're in this world that influences and, and, and the power of, of Satan influences us. And so we have to be careful with our passions. Do your passions align with the things of God? 
Are you utilizing the things that you're passionate about for God? Because it's very easy to become passionate about the wrong things. And, and, and so he talks about here that, that you have this lust, you have this desire. Why are you fighting with others? Because you desire whatever it is, whether it's to be right, whether it's, it's, it's you really like the color, the, the color gray on the walls, what, whatever it is, you're willing to go to battle over these petty things with other believers instead of being a peacemaker, right? That's what James just talked about. Those who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness, That should be our model. That's godly wisdom, but worldly wisdom says, I want it my way. Burger King theology. Although when you order something at Burger King a certain way, I never get it. So I don't understand that motto, but (laughs) we have the wrong desires. That's what leads to this. The second thing that, that leads to this, we have the wrong desires, and then we're also disappointed Because when we desire the things of the world rather than the things of God, especially if you're a believer and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you and you are living a life opposed to God's will and God's purpose for your life, you become very disappointed, don't you? You realize these things don't satisfy. These things can't satisfy. So first there's the wrong desires and then there's disappointment here. Notice uh, James talks about this disappointment. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask and you do not receive because you've asked wrongly for your passion. So you take somebody who's passionate about something and they don't get their way. What happens? You hear about it or you see it, right? Well, I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to go home. Or I'm going to do something so that I end up getting my way. Or I'm going to make sure that it's known that I want it this way. That's how it happens. It's because you're disappointed because your passions, others didn't agree with your passions. Others didn't fulfill your passions. Whatever these worldly passions are that are driving you, you become disappointed because they cannot satisfy. Friends, only God can satisfy Only God can satisfy. If you are living for whatever it is, whatever your passion may be, it will be different from me than it will be for you. Whatever your passion is that you're seeking to fulfill, if it's not in God, it will leave you hurt, broken, miserable, and angry at others. Every time. It's fun for a moment. It seems fulfilling for a second. But in the end, it's empty. Uh, Listen to one of the most famous pursuits of passion that's ever been written. It says, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For the heart was pleased because of all my labor and, and all this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind and there was no profit under the sun. The conclusion of King Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He lived for a time for his pleasures. Anything that he desired and he could have anything that he desired. And he lived to fulfill himself. Friends, 
Why is it every week we read about some star or some rich person that's going to rehab, that's in their 10th divorce, that's miserable, that's committed suicide? It's because money is not the source of happiness. It's because fame is not the source of happiness. It's because power is not the source of happiness. It's because to fulfill yourself in whatever sensual, sinful desire you have in the end is not happiness. Anything that you seek as your greatest passion outside of God will leave you empty. It will leave you broken. It will leave you hurt. And as James is writing about, it will leave a trail of hurt behind you with some of the most important people in your life. Be careful about your passions. Be careful about what you are so passionate about. Turn your passion into a passion for God's glory. Turn your passion into a passion for God's glory. The third thing that, that we see here is, is that we, we have the wrong passions. They're not fulfilled, and so we feel disappointed. And so how does that end up? James says in retaliation. In retaliation, it says here that this frustrated desire leads to violence. Um, that's what James is saying. This is what causes quarrels and fights among you. Is it not your passions that are at war within you? You desire and you cannot have. So what do you do? You don't give up on it. You murder. You, you take it to the extreme. You do whatever you have to do to fulfill that passion that you have. You covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. Has anybody ever heard about the church that split over the carpet? Have, have you heard this? It's true. You, you got the picture? Okay. This, this church is in Gatibo, Oklahoma. It's first Christian church in Gatibo, Oklahoma. And years ago, the congregation had, uh, 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 they, they needed to replace the carpet. And there was such a disagreement that half the congregation wanted blue. Half the congregation wanted a rose color carpet. And so they literally split the church in half. They put half the carpet on one side, half the carpet on the other. But they didn't stop there. They established a polity in where the, the red carpet deacon or uh, elders served the red carpet people and the blue carpet elders served the blue carpet people. They had separate communion tables. And you didn't dare mingle with the people on the other carpet. How do we get like this? How do we get like this? Is it not because we have the wrong desires? Our desires disappoint us. And so we feel we have to retaliate. James talked about it in chapter 3. Selfish ambition. And friends, so much of what we deal with in the church that becomes things that people get upset about are so petty. Again, I'm not talking about someone who denies the gospel I'm not talking about someone who, who denies orthodox theology. So much of what happens is pettiness. It's silliness. It's fights and squabbles over whether we put this here or there or we don't use it. Turn our passions together to godly passions. 
how can we as a church, how can we as a people, how can we brothers and sisters encourage each other in faith, maintain unity in the bond of peace? How can we better and more effectively reach our community for Christ? Those are the things we need to be passionate about. Those are the things. So we have to understand our desires, our passions. Uh, second thing here is we have to recognize the source of sinful passions. Where does this come from? How do we get to this point? James says one of the first things is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. It says you do not have because you do not ask. Now, I would have to suppose that the reason an individual is not asking God for something is because they know what? I'm asking the wrong thing. I, I shouldn't be asking for this to begin with. How much of our pettiness, how much of our silliness, how much of our sin would be curbed if we depended on prayer? If we depended on prayer? Have you ever tried to hate somebody and pray for them at the same time? People come to me and they say, I'm so angry with so-and-so. And you know what the first thing I tell them is? Start praying for them. Start praying for them. Because if you're really coming to the Lord in prayer, it will change your heart. Uh, a lot of times you've heard prayer might not change the situation, but it sure changes me. Sometimes just prayer will change our perspective. Oh man, I can't believe they won't do that. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe this. I, what? If you take a moment and turn to prayer... Focus yourself on the things that count. Focus yourself on God's will and God's word. What you'll find so often is your passions will be molded correctly. And it will save us from this sinfulness. It will save you from the disappointment. It will save you from breaking so many relationships and having to go back and eat crow. So prayerlessness... Now, James anticipates that somebody's going to say, well, I pray, right? Notice what he writes here. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I, I pray. How are you praying? Are you, are you praying real, genuine prayers? Or are you like Augustine early in his life when he prays and says, Lord, make me chaste, make me pure, but not yet. <laughs> We've all prayed silly, petty prayers like that before, right? We've all prayed prayers in selfishness. I'll, I'll give you an example. One of, the, one of the worst prayers I ever made like this, I was, uh, I was young and dumb, and I said, Lord, I'm in college I have a little bit of money and a little bit of job. And I said, Lord, if, if you approve this loan, I'll buy this new car. <laughs> oh, he, he approved it, and I learned a lot from it. <laughs> Do we pray with selfish motivations? Listen, prayer, uh, prayer has perimeters. God wants us to come to him. God wants us to communicate with him. God wants us to fellowship with us. God, God wants us. I mean, think about this. The, the, the creator of all the universe at any moment is ready for you at any place, at any time, anywhere. Just when you drive, please pray with your eyes open. He wants you to communicate with him. I, 
I can't call people very important at all and not get put on hold <laughs> or, or told that they'll call me back maybe or they give me to somebody else. The God of all creation wants me to pray for him. But when we pray, we have to remember that, that we need to pray according to God's will as we pray. Okay? Mercia played the flute this morning. I love it when she plays the flute. She's looking at me like, how did I get in this? Okay? It's beautiful when she plays that flute. If she put that thing in my hands, you would all be running. Right? Because there's rules. There's a way that you have to do this. You, you have to do it correctly or it sounds like a bunch of noise. It's nothing. Friends, your prayers are the same way. If you want your prayers to be answered, if you want your prayers to be truly heard, if you want your prayers to be effectual, you need to pray according to God's will. You need to seek to know His Word. Seek to ask God to show you, to give you wisdom. Not just come to God and pray your own desires. We have to be careful for that, don't we? Why do you pray? Why are you asking? Have you ever thought about that? Why am I asking for this? Is, is all my prayers, are they just selfish requests? We have to come and submit our prayers to the will of God. Submit our s- prayers to the will of God. Or else we will just try to seek self-centeredness. The third thing here is, is spiritual infidelity. Notice this. Look what he says here. He says, even... Um, even stronger concerning this condition that's happening, this, this selfishness, uh, this selfish ambition that he writes about. He says, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Remember, he's been talking about in chapter 3, godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. Godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And so what he's saying is, is this worldly wisdom that he talked about two times, calling it envy and selfish ambition. When, when we see this, when we see this fighting, when we see this quarreling, when we see this warring with each other, what are we seeing? You're living according to the world, not according to God. Your, your faith that you say that you have Go back to the way that James frames his argument here. You say that you have faith, but by your actions, you look like your life is just bent towards the world. There is no difference in you. When he says worldliness here, he's with this friendship of the world, he's, he's saying that, that, that you find comfort here. Rather than, rather than putting God as your friend, following what God says, following God's word, God's will, you would rather follow the world. Self-centeredness. Look out for number one. My way. Me, 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 me. And it even comes to the point to how you act with other believers in the church. It's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. We must uh, know the nature of the world. We must also... It, it, it's here, uh, grasp the dependability of Scripture. Uh, look here, it says, or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says? Okay, James, James writes to him and says, uh, you have a Bible, right? <laughs> you, you, you say it's God's Word? Wow, the power in that statement, right? That this is God's Word. That it carries authority. 
that we can look to this for truth. This isn't the wisdom of man that we find here. This is the wisdom of God. When God's word says something and we compare it to what the world says, what should have more weight? The word of God. The word of God. And yet James says, you're living your life as though this is under man's word. Do you see why he's going at him here? Look at what's going on in your churches. Look at this pettiness. Look at the fights. Look at what your reputation is. Look, you're repudiating the name of Christ. You're affecting the gospel, the ability to share the gospel with others. Why? Because you're living like the world. Because you're living like the world. Friends, if we want to live for God, we have to live according to God. If we want our church to be a place that glorifies God, we have to build it and maintain it upon godly wisdom. We have to maintain it upon peace and unity. All these things that we read about in chapter 3, we have to, we have to remove jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what we got to do. We have to seek to pray, but not for selfishness. To pray and ask God for wisdom. To pray for each other. If somebody hurts you, to go to them, to ask for forgiveness, to be able to say, forgive me. I did this. You know, repentance is a... Church is great for repentance, right? Why don't we practice it? Why don't we practice it more instead of harboring envy and hate and all of these things that build up. If we would just love each other, if we would just practice repentance with each other, if we can't model it here amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we do it with the world? It should first and foremost take place here. So grasp the dependability of Scripture. Do you not suppose that it's no purpose that Scripture says? James says, why do you think the Bible says this? Why do you think God gave this to you? Do you, do you think little of it? James is saying, put the Word of God in your life instead of operating by sinful passions. We have to grasp Scripture, grasp the reliability of Scripture. The, second, the, the third thing that he says here is that we should understand the holy jealousy of the Spirit. Now I'll tell you, this last verse here is, is tricky. Uh, there's, there's lots of different things in commentaries, but they all kind of come out with the same idea here. Uh, the first thing is, is that the idea of jealousy, we often think of that as negative, but there's a good way to use the word jealousy as well. Think of Exodus 20, verse 5, God prohibits idolatry and he says, you shall not worship or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. It affects God if instead of serving him, we would go and serve others. We would go to other gods. God would be jealous over that. He's jealous for our love and our affection. You know, there's, there's, there's a certain kind of jealousy that's correct to have within a marriage, right? We want the affection and the attention of our spouse for us. It shouldn't be given to another, right? So there's a way in which jealousy is a positive thing, and that's what he's writing about here. He's saying that the, the Spirit's work, the, the, the Spirit yearns, there. He, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. 
God desires for us to live according to the Spirit. The Spirit desires for us to live according to the Word of God. Our Christian life, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've been, been saved from your sins, if you've trusted in the Gospel and in the good news, God wants you to live for Him. He wants good things for you. He wants good passions for you. Not for your life to be marked by a passion for the things of the world. So much that you live for these passions. You get disappointed because you don't get them. And then you turn ugly and bitter and retaliate against others because of it. Do you see that? Do you see the difference? Does this, does this make sense? This is the way that we should live together. And it goes back to three. Are we living according to, to godly wisdom or to worldly wisdom? Are we putting in those good things that lead to peace and love and grace? Or are we living according to selfish ambition with so much passion that we're willing to do whatever to fulfill it? My prayer for this church and and my work in the ministry here as your pastor is to take very seriously Ephesians 4 verse 3. That we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That we are eager to do this. And to do so means that all of us need to be willing to curb our passions. To curb our passions. Especially about things that don't matter. My, my prayer, <laughs> the Lord, the Lord I, 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 I'm working towards this. I've, I've told others this. I would love to see us um, refresh the sanctuary. <laughs> what are we going to practice when it comes to that? Are we going to practice peace? Are we going to practice love? Are we going to do it together? Or will you want red carpet and blue carpet? <laughs> How we live matters. How we live with each other matters. We must recognize the force of our passions. Realize that your passions are what are causing you to sin. Recognize the source of these sinful passions, prayerlessness, self-centeredness, worldliness in our lives. Are you able to repent of those things? Are you able to recognize them in yourself? And we must recognize the course of godly passions. If we understand the world and its influence on us, if we, if we hold to the dependability of Scripture, if we actually practice the Scripture in our lives and, and we live jealously for God, that, that we live to fulfill the Spirit, the, the Word of God, the will of God within our life, you will find your passions are shaped 